Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. I'm thinking pretty much everyone who is a regular listener has noted major trend changes pretty much as we prepared you for in our podcast last year. There's now no disputing that inflation is running at record highs. Remember last year when we were all fed the line that inflation is only transitory? Pretty much all of the Fed and government leadership is backpedaling now. But sadly, they lost more than a year when they could have attacked inflation as it was occurring instead of after the fact. The Fed should have substantially cut their new money creation, and maybe, more importantly, Congress should have substantially cut back on accumulating more and more national debt. Sadly, they continue with their excessive spending with little sign of dealing with our burgeoning national debt. Adding to national confusion is the storyline that we have a strong employment market. Do we? For starters, we still remain 3 to 4% below the total employment in place pre-COVID, with millions of new high school and college graduates entering the labor force every year. Additionally, Workforce participation remains substantially down for the past two or more years, and now announcements of planned layoffs are interfering with the recovery story. However, small businesses, which are out of the spotlight, not Fortune 500 companies, not Google, not Facebook, not Apple, not Netflix, and so on, traditionally create approximately two-thirds of America's jobs. And small businesses are ground zero for supply chain issues, inflation, and worker compensation increases. Look at the labor market like a barbell. There are jobs at both ends, but not in the vast middle. Lower-paying hospitality jobs are available at one end, and higher-paying professional technical jobs are wanting at the higher end. It's important overall not to get caught up in political and media pronouncements that are, in reality, distractions versus factual reporting. Let's move on to inflation. Our cost of living index, as officially reported, is now running over 8% a year. But as we've noted in prior podcasts, the reported rate is based on many biases, manipulations, and attempts to underreport it. John Williams, an American economist and analyst of government reporting, prefers an inflation measure calculated using the original CPI methodology based on a basket of goods having quantities and qualities fixed. David Ranson, another U.S. economist, also questions the official CPI's viability as an indicator of inflation. Unlike Williams, Ranson does not espouse the viewpoint that the CPI is manipulated. Instead, Ranson's view is that the CPI is a lagging indicator of inflation and not a good indicator of current inflation. According to Ranson, increases in the price of commodities are a better indicator of current inflation because inflation initially affects commodity prices and it may take several years for the commodity inflation to work its way through an economy and be reflected in the CPI. That's where we are now. The economic cycle is particularly dangerous for financial health as we are experiencing global inflation and the world's central banks are not unified in their approaches. China, for example, is still pumping up their economy with money creation. Europe continues to print euros to buy newly issued government bonds. 
Japan will print endless amounts of new money to keep government short-term interest rates close to zero, and the U.S. is embarking on a Fed tightening journey. There's no relief in sight, and hope is not a strategy. Inflation in many developing countries is running at rates well over 20% a year, so it's no exaggeration to say that the world will suffer a major recession as central banks continue to work in uncoordinated ways. What are today's top U.S. inflation issues? You know, the ones that we will all feel. For one, homeowner monthly payments on the average are up 43% from a year ago. That's new homeowner purchases, the monthly mortgage amount. The jump is due to both increases in home prices and uptrending mortgage interest rates. More specifically, last year, the average monthly payment was $1,700, and this year it's $2,450. Don't forget about natural gas prices that have already doubled this year and are expected to increase much more by this winter. But the impact is much more than winter home heating. Consider that natural gas powers about 40% of all electricity generation in the United States. Higher utility bills are on the way and much higher. A featured positive in the labor market is a growing return to work in the hospitality industry, as I mentioned before, that is hotels and restaurants. The missing headline is that hospitality industry Staff costs are up already 15% year over year versus the 5 to 6% increase for all the employee categories. 5 to 6%, by the way, is historically very high all on its own. We plan a restaurant industry webinar soon when we'll address the actions ahead in food services, and we'll let you know when we plan that webinar so you can attend if you like. But to give a hint, much higher eating out prices are ahead and more limited menu selections. Other inflation indicators in June continued to be troublesome. Gasoline is up from $3 a gallon last year to almost $5 this month. On the average across the United States, In California, gasoline prices are close to $7 a gallon. Rents across the country are so far up about 15% year over year. Food prices, particularly meats and grains, continue upward with corn, wheat, and higher quality meats up more than 30% since last year. Why do I dwell on inflation? First of all, because it's running closer to double the CPI increases that are reported. Yes, closer to 15% than 8 or 10%. And secondly, because out-of-control inflation will directly impact the Federal Reserve policies for the rest of the year, and their actions will deepen the recession we're now in, in my view, and destroy many jobs in the process. We're starting to see that happen. As demand drops, companies will cut back on their key expense, staffing costs. It's a pretty big deal, and many don't consider it in their own financial plans, as politicians, the Fed, and the media don't want to report such bad news, particularly during a congressional election year where control of Congress weighs in the balance. And importantly, their own congressional jobs are at stake. Also keep in mind each congressman or congressperson has a typical staff of over 100. A lot of jobs are at stake in Washington. Imagine a company with $4 trillion a year of revenue, losing money every year, and adding $1 to $2 trillion a year of new debt, with their debt already over $20 trillion. 
Then try to imagine this company run by politicians, most of whom who have never run any company before. Hard to imagine, isn't it? The U.S. government is truly the largest and most complex organization in the world. The Federal Reserve, since Chairman Powell was recently reappointed, has changed priorities, and this is really important to keep in mind. His future career since reappointment, his actions are turning out to be quite different than his initial term. For years, he led the massive creation of money, plus bailouts, to the bond markets and even the stock market. In my opinion, this is over. The Fed understands that inflation is getting ingrained throughout the entire economy, and they only have one weapon, given that they pumped up the financial markets way too much for way too long. They will create a severe recession. And why is that? That's the only tool they have to drop consumer demand to align with the new long-term supply shortages that are creating price increases. They can't control supply chain price increases directly, but they can cause consumer demand to drop to meet the lower supply levels. How does this new paradigm work? The new paradigm works by creating a new and significant recession. When businesses are already suffering from inflation, they will bring about a return to higher unemployment plus higher interest rates, and this will start to gain traction. Lower home prices are a great example of a cycle. I can't emphasize enough in looking at the U.S. economy and our financial markets that everyone really consider cycles. And the housing cycle is a wonderful example, although it's created a large amount of pain over the past 20 years, particularly when house prices dropped substantially in 2008, 2009, and thereafter. And then we went through the increased part of the cycle up until now. But lower house prices ultimately are due to lack of affordability and new fears of future home price declines. How bad will this be by year-end? Well, it depends on the local market. I'd expect the hot markets of 2021 in the medium-sized cities to suffer the most. Fortunately, for California, the damage may not be so bad this year as there has been inadequate new building in the past 10 or so years. Next year may be another story, as more newly built homes arrive on the market and out-migration from California continues. However, the starter homes will suffer the most as lower-income renters may find it increasingly difficult to afford the much higher monthly mortgage payments I just referred to. Rental housing may once again become a higher priority than home buying, enabling the multifamily rental buildings to return to prominence. On the consumer price index, the consumer price data may look better year over year as our system digests the high inflation that's been going on for the most part of a year. But the higher price cannot be expected to come down. I'll repeat this. The higher prices cannot be expected to come down. In other words, if your prices on what you buy went up 10% the first year and then only 6% the second year, should you feel inflation is getting back under control? I don't think so. In this example, the 16% plus gets baked in. Prices don't go back down, but continue up, in this case, inspired by wage price increases. And this situation is not good. Speaking of the consumer price index, consider that the housing prices are just now coming into the index. They come in in quasi-rent, and the way they're calculated delays their reporting a year or two. And this is already in the cards. 
Consider that oil prices, gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, and ship fuel, may increase another 20 to 40% in the next year or so. Why do I say that? Few consumers realize that the insurance industry is core to global shipping. Buyers and sellers demand insurance to cover losses at sea on each ship and the cargo each ship carries. A large cargo ship easily has a value of $100 million, and a cargo of oil can easily add another $100 million. Would a buyer or seller risk $200 million on each voyage? No, particularly since the ships are generally owned by a different company than the buyer or seller of the oil. Why this background? There's a built-in clause in all protection and indemnity insurance agreements that any voyage of a ship to a sanctioned location under UN, European Community, UK, and US laws will automatically make it ineligible for insurance coverage. Since the Ukraine war began, several insurance companies were already staying away from providing such insurance coverage to ships carrying Russian cargoes, especially oil. Not only oil, but especially oil. This cautious approach was due to the payment issues, as several of the banks through which insurance payments exchanged hands had already been brought under Western sanctions. Now with the latest explicit sanctions against insurance of Russian ships and cargoes, those carrying cargoes to and from Russia will do so at their own risk and invite stringent penalties if their voyages are detected. Those ships which undertake voyages to and from Russia will not get any insurance coverage from global insurers. This is a really big deal because that implies a lot of shipments will not take place. Okay, where am I headed with this? Private global petroleum analysts, as a result of the above, are upping their expectations of future oil prices. It's not uncommon to see today's $120 or so a barrel forecast to be $180 to $200 over the next year. Imagine the impact of another 50% increase in gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, and shipping fuel. Now think about the impact on businesses that are already facing recession or drop in demand for their goods. Prepare for global financial system threats, and these threats we haven't even discussed before imply more inflation ahead. An example? The emerging country debt issues and famines that are in place occurring now and financing a lot of the emerging country debt issues that have become front and center will be new money created by the World Bank, the SDRs. To date, almost $1 trillion has been allocated, and this includes the largest ever allocation of about of just over half a trillion dollars approved on August 2nd of last year. This most recent allocation of approximately a trillion dollars was to address the long-term global needs for reserves and help countries cope with the impact of COVID-19. As famines occur, and they are, and as many countries can't pay their bond debts as they come due, and I'll give you a recent example, there are a number coming up. The World Bank and the regulatory agencies of the UN are going to be under tremendous pressure to increase global money supply. Additionally, Russia has uh, default issues, as many people have read, which is in the media. 
Russians' failure to pay $1.9 million of accrued interest on a dollar bond, which was announced just a few days ago, will trigger payments, default payments, worth billions of dollars. And that was determined by a panel of investors a couple of days ago. As the country teeters on its first major external debt default in over a century. Getting back to other countries, Sri Lanka has just defaulted on $12.6 million of overseas bonds and is flashing a warning sign to investors in other developing countries that surging inflation is set to take a toll inside the country, which will have an impact on how much money they can pay in debt service. The South Asian nation is set to blow through the grace period on $78 million of payments, actually two days ago, marking its first sovereign debt default since it gained independence from Britain in 1948. Its bonds already trade in distressed territory, with holders bracing for losses approaching 60 cents on the dollar. The government said last month it would halt payments on foreign debt. This is not the only issue. Over a dozen emerging markets have dollar debt trading in distress and serious default issues pending. I'll cite Lebanon, Belarus, Ukraine, El Salvador, Ethiopia, Tunisia, Zambia, Argentina, Suriname, Ghana, Tajikistan, Pakistan, the Bahamas, and the list goes on. In summary, there are several global threats coming at us over the horizon. New and large amounts of global money creation from the IMF, World Bank, and other agencies will support emerging and small economies. Whether they're emerging or just small, they borrowed a lot and country defaults are a growing concern. An extended Russian war is now a fact. The future is getting messier in terms of oil prices, lack of deliveries of Russian oil and natural gas to Europe, importantly, and Chinese support for Russia. Rebuilding U.S. supply chains will be expensive with many new expenses passed on to consumers. Read that as long-term inflation threats. We have a lot to consider in protecting our own financial futures, particularly given the historically high stock market and relatively low interest rates. Bonds are beginning to look more attractive, and the stock market is definitely looking overvalued. Food for thought, as the Fed and congressional borrowings promise higher trending interest rates this year and likely next year. Take care, be safe, and carefully consider your family's financial investments. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.